from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Marketing Matters on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Marketing Matters here on Business Radio Sirius XM 132. I'm Barbara Kahn. I'm the Patty and J.H. Baker Professor of Marketing. And I'm joined still, still remotely via Zoom meeting by my co-host, Americus Reed, the Whitney M. Young Jr. Professor of Marketing and the Brand Identity Theorist. Hello, Americus. Hi, Barbara. How are you doing today? It's a pretty nice day outside. I mean, the weather is springing and spring is, you know, sort of- Spring is sprung. (laughs) Spring is sprung. I like it. (laughs) So it's two weeks of class left. We're almost at the end of the semester. And you know what's interesting? The statistics are like a 50%, I guess. Of, is it that something like that? If people have been vaccinated and I yeah, know yeah, er, yeah. It, the doors are open on, in every state, I think to anyone. And a lot of our students are vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we're almost there. We're almost there. Are we on the precipice, Barbara, of getting back to the roaring 20s where we're just going to get out there and like everyone's just going to be so... Like, oh my God, human touch. Let me get out there. It's, it's going to be like an overcompensation. You know, I don't know. That's one of the predictions that, you know, it's 100 years later and we can learn from history and it's time for the <laughs> roaring 20s. Uh, and we're in the 20s, so it's perfect. <laughs> um, so there's some, but uh, there's a lot of questions about that. Um, what's going to happen to marketing? What's going to happen to the shopping experience? Mm. Everybody I know in any different industry is talking about a year mm-hmm. of COVID, mm-hmm. changed habits, and that's enough to significantly change habits. And mm-hmm. what of that? That is going to remain and what if that's going to go differently when we mm-hmm. go into the to the new new the mm-hmm. new normal the new roaring 20s whatever mm-hmm. it is i mean mm-hmm. that's what i think is on everybody's mind every conversation i have mm. um with retailers or branders or anything like that it's mm-hmm. all about what's your prediction mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what do you think is mm-hmm. going to happen well luckily for us barbara in the latter part of our show which we call the spotlight show we have an, a pretty amazing guest that's going, <laughs> that's going to break it all down for us based on a new book and a, I guess a new analysis extending a previous book. And so tell us a little bit about that before we launch into our, our hit and miss. Uh, I almost forgot America. So thank you for <laughs> reminding me, but it is an exciting week for me. Yes. Because I uh, published once again, or is my publication date this week of my mm-hmm. fully updated and expanded edition of the shopping revolution, which mm-hmm. is based on a book I wrote in 2018, but a lot happened between 2018 and today. And so I updated the book and the subtitle is now how retailers can succeed in an era of endless disruption accelerated by COVID-19. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, but so it, how has that changed things? It's super interesting though, because you're going to break this down for us. I mean, 2020 was a, was a landmark year. You were already studying the retail landscape. So you had a good idea. You had your pulse on the temperature of what was going on even before the pandemic hit. So I'll be really interested to hear about, well, we'll, we'll have to recap the con matrix, of, of course, but uh, to hear about what the new extensions are relative to China uh, and some of the other trends that you've noticed that you wanted to study. Yeah. And that's really interesting. You know, as professors, I tell um, our, my students, it's not so much the facts of what I teach you in class. It's mm-hmm. how to think about it. Mm-hmm. And so I do like to think about my book, that I wrote right before it as providing a framework for me and for everybody else to filter through everything that was happening in COVID. Mm -hmm. So because I had this framework, it was really easy for me to come to understand these different things that were happening Mm -hmm. and to put them in, in, into a, into a sense that, you know, or into a, 
a framework, I guess, that made sense to other people. Mm -hmm. And so that is the kind of things that I can talk about. I can also talk that I was really lucky right before the pandemic, I went to China. And so because of the timing of that, I got to understand Chinese retailing. I went in November 2019. And of course, we all know what happened right after that, even in China. Mm -hmm. And um, but that understanding Chinese retail from being there was another thing that really helped me nice. appreciate COVID. Nice. Well, the shopping revolution and its new extension is a definite hit. So we need not discuss that uh, as part of our hit or, hit or miss. Let's talk about some of the more ambiguous or perhaps thought-provoking elements that you spotted that we can sort of talk about in terms of this hit, hit or miss segment that we like to do here. Yeah, I'm really yeah. interested, America. There's a, it wasn't a huge big story for sexy marketing story, stories this week, but there were stuff that happened. And I'm kind of curious about your reaction to some of the, announcements, but more generally to what they represent. And let me put this into two buckets to tell you what I'm going to talk about. One of them is along the lines of all the sustainability stuff. And I'm curious what you think about that. Mm. And the other is going to be about all the the line about the, the blurring of advertising and, mm. and distribution and technology and marketing and mm. like all mm -hmm. of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's my other bucket. So let me start with my first bucket. And I know okay. this is an area, you know, better than anybody else, but Nike it's another Nike story. Sorry about that. <laughs> but Nike's always in the news now. Nike's mm -hmm. like so big. They're doing so many cool things. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they did was they launched, I think they announced it this week or last their refurbished program, ah. which takes returns for gently worn or like new or imperfect footwear, and they refurbish them and clean them to be resold at Nike stores. Now, they've never done that before. I mm -hmm. believe that Nike shoes, I don't know that much about sneakerheads and that whole culture, but I think that their collection and all this mm. other stuff. But the idea of Nike having these refurbished um, shoes in their store, that's a switch. Yeah. So what's your reaction to all of that, being a Nike expert? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I love the brand. And I think it's interesting. The very first thought that popped in my mind when you, when you sort of laid that out, Barbara, was, okay, what's the impact of this on sort of the brand equity? If you know you can kind of go in there. Because I, I always think about like hand-me-downs as sort of being, that was like always a bad thing growing yeah. up. You, did, you didn't want the hand-me-downs, you know, your, your older brother's shoes or, or whatever. And so I think about a little bit of that perspective, but I, I love the idea because when you said that, Barbara, you know, and I think this is indicative of lots of great ideas. And that's the idea. When you hear a great idea, you always say, wow, why didn't I think about that? Why, why, you know, why, why, why haven't they been doing this for 40 years? <laughs> you know? And so it kind of stands out, you know, with respect to that. And I do know that there's a lot of data that suggests that consumers are really beginning to hold companies' feet to the fire with respect to, okay, what's the impact, uh, you know, on, on the environment of this process or these, this, this experience or whatever, this, this brand. And so I think that's an important part of it. And we talked in a, in a previous segment about the complexities of, you know, buying credits versus, you know, uh, reducing your footprint versus actually very complicated sets of issues. And the question of, you know, do consumers buy? or care about this kind of thing. But I think it's going to be interesting because I think for Nike to step up, I, when you said that, I couldn't put another sort of apparel brand to that idea. So that tells me that, okay, this is kind of a first mover psychological mind share advantage. And it could be pretty powerful to Nike to continue their narrative, yes? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know, like a lot of the reuse, recycle, you know, reuse product is in luxury or like mm. purses or handbags, oh. which I think of as gently used. Okay. But like <laughs> Nike sneakers, like I don't think anybody's going to want to wear mine when I'm done with them. So that can't yeah. be what they're doing. Like it can't be that they're worn out. And they're saying it's close to new as possible. But like, I don't get yeah. why someone would buy it and then resell it close to new like what are people doing with those sneakers like i don't even understand <laughs> that whole I, it's, yeah. just, it's a culture i don't get <laughs> yeah I, I don't understand either it'd be interesting to unpack a bit of that to maybe go to to wherever the web presence is for this particular uh, initiative and take a look at it but I, I don't quite understand it like i see shoes on the street corner all the time left that are sort of say, here's free shoes and nobody wants them. No, to your point. Wants them, so, <laughs> so, so that, you know, I, unless the idea is somehow this, you know, I mean, I'm trying to think like, where, when does this happen? It only happens in like bowling alleys where you're willing to, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where right. you're willing to actually put on somebody else's shoes that they have worn gently. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I think this will be interesting, but to me, here we go with Nike always like trying to be, and I love it, trying to be like the first to do something, the first bold step, that's risky and has exposure to it and, and could be a bad thing that turns out not so good, but they're willing to take that chance. I mean, the only other thing is I know Jordan's and some of those other things are like collectibles. Mm -hmm. And so, but that, so maybe people buy them and maybe like if you're wearing very, very fashionable shoes, like with any kind of high fashion, you don't wear it that often because you want to be the first with any new thing that comes mm -hmm. out. And mm -hmm. I don't know what the turn of, you know, how often Nike shoes come out or Nike mm -hmm. styles. I did. I have visited Nike and they are a lot of shoes. So yes. I know they have yes. lots and lots and lots of styles, but I don't know how often they come out. And I don't know. Maybe this is something where you bought the newest Jordans and you only want to wear them for a month and that's why oh. uh, you know, it could be something like that like collection kind of really high end oh that's super um, interesting yeah it, it makes me wonder i mean could i don't know this is kind of a crazy idea could they do like a subscription model where it's just like you just pay a little bit of money every month and you kind of get here's the new the shoes. newest nikes yeah newest Nike, i mean that's what rent bit. the runway was all about that idea yeah and maybe yeah, yeah i don't know it'd be in, nike is trying a lot of stuff now that they're going basically direct they've dropped mm -hmm. most of their wholesalers mm. they still have a few like Foot Locker and dicks that they're still strong with but most of the other um retailers are being dropped by Nike and they're going direct and they're mm. doing a lot of interesting things. And, you know, I'm all for that because I believe in customer analytics and I believe in the customer model, but I did hear somebody criticize Nike for that mm. because there's a lot of small retailers, okay. little tiny companies, not yeah. like Foot Locker or Dick's. And uh -huh. when you pull Nike out of their stores, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a big deficit. That's really yeah. interesting. That's really interesting. I, I was part of a panel a couple of weeks ago for Baker retailing center. And the head of Nike Direct was on there leaning in on this idea, Barbara, of live stream uh, product launches, like digital, direct to consumer. It's, it, I mean, the, you'll, you'll talk about this when you talk about the book, but the whole retail landscape is just being reimagined. And you, and you better be on board with that train to be ready to rethink and change your whole <laughs> mental model because I think that's what's going to be happening in the future. Yeah, and some they're going to be some hurt, people hurting, you know, yep. some of the small retailers that are depending on some of these big brands, and these big brands are going direct. Yeah, um, and they're so. But you, you, you had already put the call out. You had already, you know, sort of said to you know put the warning out there that listen, 
bad retail is going to disappear. These are your words. Yeah. <laughs> so, the question is, are mom and pop little retailers? So this gets to the future, you know, yeah. in a lot of different ways. Are they bad retailer? Or are they like <laughs> Uncle Nancy and, you know, or Aunt Nancy and Uncle Ed? They own yes. this little store down the street. Yes. Um, my grandparents owned a little card store. And yeah, uh, yeah. I, I remember I remember walking to the little mom and pop videos video rental store. And how that just got decimated as soon as Blockbuster showed up, they were just gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, so you better be paying attention to the, to the, to the winds of change, if you will. So, yeah. yeah. So I got another one and then I want to hear yours. And this is Pepsi's been all over the place talking about Pepsi innovation. And they're talking about different ways of thinking about advertising and marketing. Mm -hmm. And they have what's called PepsiCo Labs. Mm. And they are looking for these different um, upstarts or new ventures to partner with. And they're coming out with different kinds of packaging ideas Mm. and different kinds of, like you mentioned, live streaming. And one of the things they had was this um, tie-up. So they're always looking for small companies to partner with that are innovative. And they have one that they're working on with Mountain Dew with this Mm. um, green part. And that's a virtual experiences platform that the soda brand deployed around the current NBA season. Oh. And it's including its sponsorship of the league's three point contest. Okay. And so you can bet on and predict the, pe- the player's shots. Okay. So it's oh, like a gamification yep. technology yep. subscription. Like you mix everything up in there, mm-hmm. you know, but this idea of thinking about brands as experiences, as games, as betting, as sports, as competition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not just selling green liquid or whatever color Mountain Dew is, you know, it's Mm -hmm. selling betting. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, what what about that? How does that work? What's your thought about all of that? I mean, that has to do with brand identity for sure. Totally has to do with brand identity. And I think it's interesting because it is tying back into what you're going to talk about later with this notion of, Shoppertainment, I think, is what you call it. And the idea that it's just got to be a 360-degree seamless experience. And how do you get people to how do you get people to continue to live and eat and sleep the brand outside of the actual moment of consumption, right? And so, you know, this idea of really creating a full multi-sensory sense of experiential engagement with the brand even in the context of something that might be seen as not so, you know, not, not so ethical, maybe, I don't know. Uh, But, but definitely a part of this notion of trying to create that sense of play and exploration and gamification that you talk about. I think it's pretty amazing. And it's also consistent with when we had the, uh, the CMO of Mountain Dew come on and talk to us about what they were doing for their Super Bowl ad, very much the same thing, like trying to create engagement, trying to create, you know, getting people involved in a story. I think it was the John Cena uh, Mountain Dew launch of the new of the new flavoring, how you had to basically count the number of Mountain Dew bottles in the ads and then submit on Twitter and then the right, winner gets a million bucks. So right. again, a, an extension of that, let's how do we get Mountain Dew out of just the drinking of the sips of your mouth and across a wide, you know, a sort of swath of experiential engagement that draws you in and halos around the brand and creates all of this excitement and fun and surprise. Yeah, I mean, it's just such an interesting thing. If you go to work for a brand company now, you're going to be in sports betting. You know? That's I love kind it of. <laughs> but I, I love it though, because in some senses, we teach a lot of these concepts in marketing. And now everyone is suddenly coming to Jesus because now they're realizing that your point about customer centricity, focusing in on the experience, fo- focusing in on creating some kind of emotional resonance 
and not just sort of, you know, bricks and mortars, you know, OR arguments around traditional retailing, but trying to reimagine it into something totally different and totally, you know, game changing, I think is where, where all the money's at. You know, and I'm also, I'm the executive director of Marketing Science Institute, and we partnered with ARF, which is Advertising Research Foundation or Federation. And um, they were talking about some of the questions those advertisers are looking at, which is with all of these different ways to spend money, you know, we, money is a, is, a, is, a, is a scarce resource. And how much money do you put in traditional brand building? How much mm-hmm. money do you put in, in investing in influencers? How much money do you put in this innovation, working with these startups to come up with new experiences? Mm-hmm. How much mm-hmm. money do you put into tech when really... All of this is brand building in some sense, yes, you know, right. it can all be put in the in the pile of brand building. But now there's so many different ways to think about brand building. And we didn't even talk about the idea of creating value in terms of social values and things mm-hmm. like that, which I know you were just on a, another radio show recently talking about some of those issues again. Mm-hmm. Um, but how does a have you I don't know, you've talked to a lot of brands. How are they parsing their budget and thinking <laughs> about? A- yeah. What way to spend their money? Have That's you talked great... to them? <laughs> That's a fantastic question. I, I talk to them. I don't pose that question directly, Barbara, but it would be interesting to look at some data. I wonder if our past guest, uh, Professor Christine Mormon, I wonder if her CMO survey when she came on our program and talked about that. I wonder if there's data where CMOs report that out, perhaps. But I, it would be very interesting to look at that shift because I'll bet it's things are shifting around a lot of lot of the bucket going into digital and all kinds of other sorts of things but the bigger point being that there's a reckon there's a there's a, a recognition that the marketing piece is absolutely critical and and you and, th- and it can't be like that's the number one cost center that gets you know cut out <laughs> when the pandemic hits etc cetera, etc cetera. that's got to be the bottom line marketing as an investment not an expense and we have so many things to spend it on now the more the better you know yes, exactly. but trying to figure it out you know and I, you're right there's probably is some data out there that we could parse but some of it is also guessing because mm-hmm. like we said at the start of the show you know we're coming out of covid now and understanding how important some of this digital live streaming is going to be when people can go to real-time events mm-hmm. versus, you know, if we go back to sports event, Pepsi's probably a big um, advertiser at live sports. How's mm. that com- how does that compare to these digital experiences and things like that? Interesting. I wonder, do you have any, uh, any knowledge around what Pepsi is doing in response to what Coke did with respect to the Georgia uh, voting oh. laws. Did they come out in a line with Coke or did, are they staying quiet? Do we, I didn't see, uh, I didn't, there are a lot of brands that are playing a game, playing in that, but I didn't particularly notice whether Pepsi was one or not. They're yeah. headquartered in New York. So it's not as close yeah, to okay. home. Not as close, but to I home. don't know. They may have, I don't know. Because I wonder if they see this as an opportunity, Barbara, to sort of say, Hey, you know, we're the drink for, for everybody <laughs> as opposed to we, you know, that would be interesting. I don't think they would do that though. I think they would want to align, you know, with their competitor. I don't know. That's actually an interesting question. You know, what, what would the, what would the strategy be? This is an opportunity to perhaps jump in and try to weaken Coke's position since they're, you know, agreeing to alienate half the world or half the United States, maybe. Uh, it's an interesting question. Yeah, but it does make it polar polarization, you know, polarizes totally. the whole thing. And maybe they want to stay away from that. We'll totally. See. And ho- others are staying out and apparently doing doing well, staying out like Home Depot and others right. have refused to jump on the Zoom calls or or basically saying like we made our statement when we made our statement. So there's no need to sign anything uh, collectively as a group of allies, et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So what have you been looking at this week? Well, OK, so. 
this is unbelievable. So uh, you, you, you know this because you've known me for the 20 years I've been at Wharton, uh, that I used to have a cat named Jonesy Decat. Uh, <laughs> he, he passed away 10 years ago on Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. But, but anyway, I was a cat person. And I'll never forget this, Barbara. I was, one time I was shopping, I was in the line, uh, in the cat food aisle. And I'm, and I'm shopping in the cat food aisle and I'm just like standing in front of uh, the assortment. You study variety seeking too. So this is, you'll appreciate this. And uh, I'm just standing there and this woman walks up behind me and she taps me on the shoulder. And I said, yes. And, and she says, you know, he really doesn't care. <laughs> and her point was like, you know, you're right. It's like, why am I like shopping for cat food? You know, and, and, but it, it kind of made me realize, Barbara, like th there are these people who are like super pet folks, you know, cat person, dog person. That's apparently a very, you know, distinct personality difference. But I was reading online uh, about this Fancy Feast, which is a cat brand. It's kind of an upscale cat brand, uh, cat food brand. Uh, is about to come out with a, a new cookbook that includes human recipes inspired by cat food. And <laughs> so I, you know, I got to check this book out. It, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, but I, I've, I've always sort of wondered, is this, is this like a good, you know, like when, when the animals become so, when, when they get elevated to like human status, is that good? Is that bad from a marketing perspective? Is that like a niche segmentation sort of a thing. I mean, last time we talked about the notion of, we actually talked about this in our comedy show last week where we played that clip about, you know, the dogs at, at the oh, Santa, right. Yeah. right? It's like, people are into this. Is this, is this a good thing for Fancy Feast to do a, a human cookbook? What are your thoughts? That's so interesting. And, you know, we talk about some of the trends that are happening in COVID. One of the things is off the charts is pet ownership. Mm -hmm. And ah. you can't, if you want to own a pet during COVID, you just couldn't find a dog to own or a cat <laughs> to own because everybody was getting into pets. Oh, and wow. I know you can certainly see it around here in Philadelphia. Every other corner is a dog store, a cat store. So it's big business. Uh -huh. So this is really interesting. This is letting your cat inspire food for you, right? Yes. That's what you're saying. It's human food. It's human food and it's a cookbook of human food. And I'm not, I'm not sure how, how cat food could inspire anything other than pate, <laughs> but maybe it's good. I don't know. I, I'm, but it's interesting. I'll have to check it out now. But the whole idea, I mean, let's unpack the theory. Is the theory, Barbara, that cooking, the act of cooking has, this, has its own sense of experiential joy. So is there a way, maybe this is the question that Fancy Feast is posing, is there a way to sort of co-op some of that experiential joy and kind of live it through our brand and this little, this little thing that you love so much as part of your life? I mean, is, yeah. that the, is that the theory? And there's no branded ingredients from the cat food in no. the recipes, right? So it's really <laughs> just an experiential kind of thing. Yeah, it's that's just so interesting. Well, one of, of the things I've been thinking about during COVID is, you know, I got to develop some hobbies. You know, it's just mm -hmm. about time. And I'm thinking <laughs> about developing cooking as a hobby. Ah. So this comes at a good time for me. <laughs> and, you know, the idea of being creative and thinking about food a different way. Like, mm -hmm. I wonder if some of that is what inspired it, because I used to eat out every single meal before COVID. And now I've been cooking a lot. Mm. And what I find is really hard in cooking is coming up with new ideas. I do like variety yeah. um, in my cooking, even mm -hmm. though my husband could eat pizza every single night, you know, but for me, <laughs> I do like to see some variety. And the idea of sparking inspiration 
uh-huh. from cat food or uh-huh. from something else to come up with creative recipes. It's an interesting idea. It's an interesting. Um, uh-huh. Maybe you should you should do this little test. Maybe you should uh, slip Bob some some fancy feast and, say, <laughs> and you know put it on some really nice crackers of some or, or you know uh, and, and see if you can tell the difference. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting way. You know, I think it's a theme of what we've been talking about this whole time. Another way of thinking about experience. Yeah. And you got to think about your brand in new ways outside of product attributes, outside of customer benefits and thinking more about the overall experience Mm -hmm. um, surrounding the product. That's Mm -hmm. kind of what marketers are into nowadays. And we know that we know that these people who are in that that niche segment of really being super close you know, they don't have a pet. This is some, this is part of their family. This is like a, this is a bigger emotional thing. Uh, we know that, you know, they have those feelings of, of, of wanting to signal to themselves and maybe even to others that they have this deep bond with this animal. And so part of that might be just, you know, creating something, another opportunity to, to craft and engineer an experience that just taps into some of that already existing emotionality. So it might be brilliant. Yeah, it might be. I mean, there's no question there's that kind of deep emotions about pets. Um, and, and that's good. You know, it's, it's, one of the things I'm going to talk about in my class next on Wednesday is the power of love. Oh, you know, oh. and you can love anything. And awesome. marketers are really tapping into the power of love and mm-hmm. the idea of using emotion and mm-hmm. emotion towards others. You know, love of anything, love of um, anything. as yeah. be, being very motivating and broadening so absolutely more power just, to it and more power to it and listeners just just as a word of advice it's okay to love your pet just don't love your pet <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that's really good advice <laughs> all right americus on that note we're going to take a short break and when we're back we're going to talk about my new book which is a fully updated and expanded edition of the shopping revolution how retailers succeed in an era of endless disruption accelerated by COVID 19 this is marketing matters business radio sirius xm 132. 